Hello, welcome to Lunch Money. Uh, Lunch Money is your online and social media home for special situations, workouts, and capital raising professionals. My name is Nick Samios. I am the fund manager and director here at Hermes Capital, and I am your Lunch Money host. So a very warm welcome today. Uh, it's unbelievable that we've uh, we've made this journey this far through this uh, through uh, 2020. Um, just a reminder to uh, share, like, and subscribe. Uh, help to uh, help us get the word out to your fellow professionals. Uh, and another reminder that question of the day, uh, online question of the day, gets the lunch money mug. Ask questions on Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, Facebook, or whatever platform you're watching us on. Um, now. There are two narratives that seem to uh, be the feature uh, in a lot of discussions that I'm having of late. Narrative number one is the, um, the, the, the money, money on the sidelines. Everybody's talking about the money on the sidelines. Um, we've got nearly zero interest rates. Uh, we've got uh, investors, whether or not you're talking about hedge funds or high net worth individuals, everybody is yield hungry. They're looking for yield, looking for deals, looking for unusual investments uh, where they can make a little bit of yield. Um, and there's a lack of deals. Uh, there's, not, there's not a lot of deals uh, in, in the, you know, businesses that are uh, that are looking, you know, doing mergers or acquisitions or looking for capital. There's, there's lots of money. Uh, a lot more money and a lot more investors than there are deals. So that's the first narrative, the uh, the money on the sidelines. And the other narrative, of course, is the insolvency cliff. Um, we've got the insolvency, uh, insolvent trading moratoriums that come off on the 31st of December. We've got um, banks looking to try and get back to uh, managing their files in the old way. Um, and we've got, of course, JobKeeper winding back. Um, so, uh, and we've also got this situation with China trade. Uh, right now, I believe there's 80 ships uh, circling the waters uh, near China, loaded with coal, uh, trying to uh, trying to uh, get a, a break in the deadlock there. So we've got issues with trade. We've got uh, all of that um, lining up for this uh, this so-called insolvency cliff. And what we're going to talk to about today is where the insolvency cliff. Uh, meets the money on the sidelines. And we've got two uh, two wonderful guests to help us have that discussion today, uh, Tian Kerr uh, and Richard Hughes. So I'll introduce you to Tian Kerr firstly. G'day, Tian. How are you? I'm good, Nick. How are you? Fantastic. Tian is a uh, insolvency and litigation partner at Lander and Rogers. Um, what's been keeping you busy this week, Tian? Well, not much in the way of insolvency work due to the moratorium, of course, but uh, very busy on the litigation front. A lot of fraud cases at the moment, particularly involving personal protective equipment. A lot of deals going around in that area, import-export to the United States in particular, and there's a lot of fraudulent activity. Yeah, fraud seems to be a bit of a theme at the moment. Uh, uh, the, the PPE thing, yeah, I think I've mentioned to you before, I've had a couple of those deals cross my desk. I don't know, what, I'm, I'm not suggesting they were fraudulent, but there's a lot of that sort of activity out there. And then there was something in the paper this week uh, about a hedge fund getting stung for, was it $130 million or some enormous amount of money in what seemed to be an elaborate fishing exercise. So... Yes, it's, been a, it's become a global problem, actually, not just a, an Australian problem, but we're certainly seeing the effects here in Australia. Other than the uh, kind of cases like that, the fraud cases and the general commercial litigation, which has definitely picked up a lot slower at the beginning of the year with the commencement of the pandemic, while everyone was getting their footing straight, but certainly a lot busier now. 
apart from that, I've just been mostly waiting for Richard Hughes to call me about the Virgin matter. But uh, <laughs> like well, waiting for think- call, I didn't get a call. So uh, I don't. I don't think you're Robinson Crusoe there. Um, and tell me when when the phone. You know, speaking of calls, when the phone does ring, I mean, what's the most common question you get get these days? How long have I got to restructure my business is is pretty common. Like, when are the moratoriums going to come to an end? What's it going to mean for me? Those those types of questions. I'm getting a lot of inquiries from very nervous, scared directors going, well, I've, I've held on for nearly a year or three quarters of a year. It's pretty clear the music's going to stop soon. We've got good news on the vaccination front, et cetera. So we're looking at a first quarter, second quarter revival of the industry and insolvency because a lot of businesses are just no longer going to be sustainable. They're going to have a job keeper, the job keeper uh, wind down, and they're going to have a lot of employee entitlements that are due. They're going to have a hundred percent workforce and a 50% market share or 50% market, which to try and keep these hundred percent workforce engaged. And it's going to be very, very challenging for many. There's going to be a lot of redundancies and that's going to lead to a lot of insolvencies because these redundancies cost a lot of money. Yeah, I guess uh, we were talking earlier in the week and you were concerned that, uh, you know, people are going to need to make large parts of their workforce redundant is, is what you're predicting. But they, don't, they won't necessarily have um, uh, the, the money in the bank to be able to make all those payouts. Well, that's right, Nick. A lot of these businesses are currently just subsisting with their workforce on JobKeeper. In many instances, they've stood down employees under the Fair Work Act, but those employees are still employed and they're going to be coming back and their their employment entitlements, when they're made redundant, will crystallize and have to be paid out. So a lot of, uh, a lot of employers are going to face some tricky decisions in the coming months and it's going to be a very challenging uh, market for them to come back to because they don't come back to a 100% market. They come back to a market that's winding up and drastically changed. I mean, look at the hospitality industry. All you have to do is take a look at the number of people walking around the downtown core of Sydney on any weekday, and you you don't need to be a rocket scientist to know that the numbers are drastically down. Well, I was tuning into the uh, TMA conference. They're having their annual conference um, this week. I don't know if you managed to catch any of that. But uh, one of the things that they were saying is, uh, you know, they're talking about the larger firms and are hoping to be back to 50% in the office uh, next year. I'm thinking, wow. Listen, just before we go to introduce Richard, I I did want to ask you, you mentioned that you're talking to a lot of directors. Um, You know, I've always said that the directors of the SMEs are more or less all in, you know, come hell or high water, you know, they've got all their personal wealth at stake no matter what, whereas the directors of, you know, um, of larger firms, they're not necessarily shareholders in those firms, but they're still exposed to directors' responsibilities. I mean, are you talking to the direct, those sorts of directors or directors that have got skin in the game? And uh, do you think that they are, that they are nervous for, for what's coming? We're getting a lot of inquiries from both large, small and medium-sized enterprises. The concerns are a little bit different, but they all revolve around the same solvency concerns. For the small to medium enterprise businesses, those are you're quite right. The directors in that are personally involved. They've got personal guarantees on the line in most instances, and their their wealth is very much tied up into the business. For large institution institutional clients, however, the concern is really just about market share. How are they going to recover? And that's where I think we might see a lot of merger and acquisition activity. Okay. All right. Well, that'll that'll be a nice little segue when uh, in, in in a little while. Okay. We'll put you back into the waiting room there, Tian. And we'll introduce our next guest, Richard Hughes.
G'day, Richard. Hi, how are you? Good morning. Hi, Nick. How are you? G'day, g'day. Now, uh, Richard Richard is a partner with uh, Deloitte, and this sounds like a, a stupid question, but forgive me, it's the traditional question I, I ask everybody. What has been keeping you busy this week? Yeah, well, obviously, um, Virgin settled last week, so, um, uh, you know, pretty quiet week, really. <laughs> no, it's, it's um, just, just the clean-up of that, and um, we've still had an ongoing, um, ongoing other work to do, um, more on the informal side, so a lot of work assisting our clients with uh, negotiations with their major creditors, um, either that be a bank or a major supplier, and uh, helping, I guess, um, those clients uh, get the relationship back on track, particularly during COVID when it's been difficult as well. And um, as much as I think the banks and a lot of people have been very understanding, um, they still need money to survive and you have to work your way through it and work together. So we, we, play, a, we play a part in, in doing that. So I've got a couple of clients where we're uh, helping standstills with banks, for instance, and, and things like that. Right. And the general disposition of the banks is to err on the side of, of wanting to help, obviously. I mean, yeah. what's their biggest concern? Well, like if, you're, if you've been speaking with the client and then you get to go and talk to the bank, is it, is it a concern of losing money? Is it a concern of, you know, uh, what do they call it, the reputational risk? Uh, what, what do you yeah. think is primarily on their mind? On the banks? Uh, with the, at that TMA um, conference earlier in the week, the, there was quite a good session with uh, a couple of the banks there, and they, they did give some pretty good uh, responses. But it is definitely reputational. I don't think this um, they're going to go back to the old ways of appointing you know, their favourite receiver, as as uh, James said in that session. Uh, but um, they they want to work with clients, and end of the day, what I think a lot of clients don't understand, or customers of banks don't understand, is that when 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 they um, break a covenant or or miss a payment. You've essentially breached a promise to the banks, uh, and and the relationship has been put in jeopardy. And yeah. so the biggest thing, you, the biggest task you've got, in fact, is to work back that trust. And yeah. you can you can you can be as insolvent or as have as much debt as you like, but if you ha- if you've got trust, you can actually work through it. If you haven't got trust, um, you you won't. Now I, I know one of your colleagues in Sydney who was seconded to one of the banks, uh, and then he was pulled back again. Do you think the banks are, are, are adequately resourced, um, or? You know, are they going to be leaning on people such as yourselves? What, what's the situation there? They're gearing up, definitely. Um, certainly uh, across the, the, the majors, we're hearing of, um, you know, a substantial amount of recruitment going on in those recovery areas. Um, so they are big beasts and they, will, uh, they can move quite quickly in terms of bringing staff on. Um, but they do need assistance and sometimes it's not that um, the re- resource is the issue, it's the independence. It's yeah. just have, having, having that, um, that release valve in the relationship, which is what we provide. And, and some professional advice. Yeah, well, I've always said it's uh, it's always good to have someone like yourself also on the director side or on the company side that you mm. can give the bad news to the other senior management as well. It might be hard for founding directors and the like to to to, to do as well. Um, okay, all right. Well, look, what we'll do is we'll bring uh, Tian back, and uh, we'll we'll start our discussion. Um, uh, on this subject of uh, M&As, what, what's got me interested in this is that uh, when when this whole COVID thing first happened, um, you know, I was talking to uh, one of my colleagues in the M&A space and I was saying this is going to be fantastic. There's going to be lots of opportunities, lots of buying opportunities, you know, uh, everybody's got a, well, you know, we've got a nice big fat checkbook and, and of course, uh, they said, well, yeah, so does everybody else. And what we found is that there seems to have been a lot of, uh, a lot of competition for deals. Um, uh, is this something? I'll start with you, Richard. Is this something in the in, in the insolvency firms? Um, are they equipping themselves? You know, assuming this this uh, cliff comes, are they equipping themselves to to sell businesses? 
Yeah, well, um, for a firm such as ours, we have an M&A division. So for larger matters where there's um, you know, some complexity involved, we do do work with uh, the M&A team. And uh, on Virgin, for instance, we do work with investment banks as required. Um, so we, we're already already well equipped for it. Uh, we do know some of the other firms are looking at the same things in terms of equipping themselves for these, uh, the, 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 uh, the M&A deals that might come from it. Um, I think the other thing to say about it is it isn't just about um, being appointed an administrator or a liquidator or a receiver and, and selling an asset. And the M and A transactions that involved with that, but actually getting involved earlier uh, and and doing some planning around it and using the administration procedure to 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 to, to drive the M and A uh, transaction and value in the transaction itself. So so tell me, you talked about getting involved earlier. So what 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 does Safe Harbour play a role in that? Like I understand the role of Safe Harbour in terms of uh, you know protecting directors uh, from insolvent trading, so they can stay in the saddle and have a real go at, at saving the business. But is there a role for Safe Harbour in, in prepping a business for sale? Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's the idea of Safe Harbour is to uh, give the directors some time, free from the concerns of uh, insolvent trading, to to come up with a plan and come up with a better outcome than an immediate administration or liquidation. So that's exactly what Safe Harbour is designed for. Uh, at, you know, the way it stands at the moment, um, that will be needed as of 1 January. So yeah. I, I think it's the perfect platform for that. And not only that, the, the, the Safe Harbour the safe harbor Defence or the carve-out, um, you know, it, it's beneficial to have an advisor in there helping you with that. So that's where I see, um, you know, some great opportunities for, for our, our profession and yours uh, in, in, that, in that pre-planning area. Yeah, I mean, to qualify for Safe Harbour, there's certain things you've got to have done, and one of them is to have yep. a viable plan, and uh, I'm sure yes. that having a viable plan with your imprimatur on it is going to be a lot more defensible in court than something written yep. on the back of an envelope, uh, proverbially or otherwise. What What do you think, Tian? Um, is there, do you see a role for Safe Harbour in prepping businesses for sale? Is this something that, that you've encountered? Absolutely. Uh, as Richard said, it can be a better vehicle for allowing di directors to implement a plan to get the business going again, viable and profitable. A lot of businesses in Australia are extremely successful, but during the pandemic, they're struggling for obvious reasons. They're going to need some time to get back on their feet, and Safe Harbor is one mechanism by which they can do that. Of course, other mechanisms exist, but Safe Harbor seems to be a very effective tool in in that space and uh tell me uh richard is it is it a buyer's market when it comes so will it be a buyer's market for distressed businesses in the in the new year or is there just so much money around i, I was saying to you a little bit earlier that um you know as soon as i see a um an im or a, or a deck uh prepared prepared professionally you know whether it's a deloitte m&a department or whoever it might be my heart sinks a little bit because i think well you know, this is going to be uh, heavily competed for, uh, the, the, this deal. What, what is there a lot of money? I mean, are you getting inundated? Oh, there's, there's certainly a lot of money um, and, and, and more and more it's coming in different shapes and sizes. It's coming from overseas. We're certainly hearing lots more about uh, distressed debt funds, which has not really been a factor in the landscape um, up until probably the last few years in Australia. But that's, that's uh, you know, the oak trees and, and, the, and the like starting to come more and more into Australia and more and more interested in those um, sort of investments. Obviously, in the in the Virgin process, we had a couple of those funds that were interested at the time. And so yeah. it's definitely a part of it. It's a, it, There is a lot of money out there. Um, yields are low. You put your money in your bank account, you're, you're almost getting zero. So you've got to find somewhere for it. So we're certainly, um, you know, from our perspective, uh, our job is to extract as much as we can from a purchaser. So from our perspective, it's a it's a good thing <laughs> that there is a yeah. competition. I know you hate it as a purchaser, but as a, as a seller, it's uh, it's it's competitive yeah. tension is what it's all about. 
Yeah, I guess they're, uh, yeah. We can just touch on what Richard has said. Um, we're getting a lot of inquiries from overseas investment opportunities looking for, for deals, as you say. And we're doing a bit of an advising on the competition aspects. Section 50 of the Competition and Consumer Act impacts whether an acquirer can acquire shares or assets of a business if it's going to lead to a reduction in market share. So you look for opportunities to consolidate your market share and increase your yield, but you can step into a minefield by having the regulator looking at your deal if you haven't given proper consideration to market share competition concerns. One possible exception to that, of course, is the failing company exception, which allows a different application of the test. That is, if the company is failing and would not be in the marketplace but for the restructure, then you can qualify for an exception to the competition requirements. Wow. Okay. So uh, that's that. Yeah. Okay. And that's it. so you are getting calls from overseas funds that are that are a asking you what to are there to, to identify opportunities as well as uh, on the technical side. Absolutely. A lot of inquiries out of Singapore and China. A lot of money looking to come into Australia and uh, take what they see uh, an opportunity out of a crisis and trying to invest. And then you've got, of course, the FERB requirements now since the commencement of the pandemic, Foreign Investment Review Board, sorry to talk in acronyms, uh, but FERB's FERB's, uh, requirements to approve asset acquisitions and business acquisitions and potentially unwinding transactions that, that don't meet meet their standards. So it's it's got a little bit of uncertainty in the market. So it's certainly something you have to navigate carefully and cautiously. And what about you, Richard? Are you, uh, I mean, apart from the obvious uh, recent transaction, I mean, do you have uh, funds ringing you up and saying, look, have you got any uh, anything on your plate that we can take a look at? Yeah, we do. And um, yes, yeah, c- certainly it's, uh, it, there's a lot of interest in that. Uh, you know, insolvency is seen as an area where there might be some um, greater returns to be gotten. Um, obviously, that includes some risk as well, but there is money available to, to look at that. And essentially, that's what you need to do to get yield is take a little, little bit more risk. Is it fair to say there won't be bargains or...? Oh, I think it depends on the buyer and the situation. It's um, I don't think there's any blanket rule, and there's always going to be pockets of value in any market. Um, yeah. There, there are you know there are still a lot of uh, hospitality, travel, tourism businesses that you know um, could very well recover, and it, it, you know, some of them are still being based on pricing that um, suggests that there'll be no cure to COVID and will never recover. And I'm not sure that's right. So well, I, I don't think there's never going to be any bargains, but it's going to be you know you're going to have to be selective. Yeah, what, what I found fascinating uh, as I've sort of become more acquainting myself with this whole business um, is that there's different kinds of buyers, obviously. I mean, if you're coming in as a new buyer, new to the industry, but just with a checkbook, and you're competing with someone who may be looking as the opportunity as a vertical integration or a horizontal integration, that person is able to pay obviously more than, than maybe you'd be prepared to pay because they're going to get their IRR in other areas. Is, is that something you're finding as well? From time to time, yeah, um, certainly from a, a purchaser coming in that has uh, you know some sort of synergies uh, from the purchase, yeah, they, they, they're naturally going to have an advantage and make it very hard for financial buyers to buy it. So it's uh, it's always something you got to consider when you're going into a process is who who else might be there. Right. And uh, Tian, with when it comes to, you already mentioned there's FIRB, the Foreign Investment Review Board. Uh, you mentioned uh, also the um, uh, the, 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 
you know, dominating the market. So those sorts of, I guess, competition considerations. Uh, and they, they apply generally to investors. But what, what are the, what's the sort of hot water that the insolvency people can get into in the sale process? Well, it's the same concerns as always. I mean, a lot of um, a lot of people are looking for bargains. Smart buyers will always find bargains. That's that's true now in a pandemic as it as as it was before the pandemic. You can get into trouble with foreign investment review board. They can actually unwind the transaction. So the situation in relation to insolvent distressed debt acquisitions can be a little bit different because of the failed company test. But you do have to dot your I's and cross your T's and make sure you are addressing the competition concerns, whether insolvent or not. Now, now I had I saw one earlier, uh, well, late last year, where there was a number of buyers wanting to buy, uh, wanting to buy a business. And, you know, there were offers coming in, uh, after, you know, after technically the, the the cutoff had been, and uh, uh, and then and then you're sort of in a position where, you know, you've got a bird in the hand versus two in the bush. I mean, just just coming back to you, Teen, on that. Um, I mean, you're you're advising insolvency people. What what happens when you've got someone who uh, you know you've got a, a buyer who you know has got proven funds to buy, and they're going to meet the deadline, and then if someone else comes in right at the death offering to pay twice as much, you can't substantiate that they've got the money. I mean, what happens in those scenarios? Well, oftentimes it comes down to skillful negotiation. You need to right. convince the seller that you're, uh, you're the buyer for them, that you're, you've got the interest in the long-term viability of the business. Many of these people in the SME market and also in the larger markets as well, they have employees that they're in incredibly loyal to and have been loyal to them. So they're looking to service those loyalties by keeping these people employed, keeping the company viable, increasing yield for shareholders. And so it's it's a constant battle for them to keep these businesses competitive in a, in a, in a very difficult market. And that's, that's more so now than ever, and that it ever has been with the pandemic. So when you are in these negotiations, you want to convince the seller that you're the right buyer for them. And, 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 you know, we were talking a bit earlier on a matter that you'd been involved in recently, Tian, where uh, in the end, the existing owners of the business ended up buying the, the business or reinvesting in the business. But you had other buyers, want, you know, because of the distressed insolvency scenario, you had other buyers coming in. So I guess that is a situation where uh, presumably you're dealing with stakeholders to, to get them to back, to back, you know, back the horse you want them to back. That's right. In many cases, you're dealing with a beauty pageant where you've got a lot of potential acquirers of a business and you need to convince the seller that you're the right party to be buying the business. Now, a lot of people are very attached to their business, the employees they've had for many, many years, and they want to make sure the business is viable and growing, but they've still got the distressed debt situation or insolvency threats around the corner and the pandemic is simply making that worse. So what you need to do is convince them that you're the right fit for them, you're going to increase the benefits of the business and that it's going to be a good partnership. One, one person's merger is another person's takeover. And so yeah. in cases, you need to convince them that when you do invest or acquire the majority interest in their business, it's it's not a bad thing for them. It's a good thing. 
And uh, Richard, I'll pose the next question to you. And as I said a little bit earlier, you can uh, sort of reveal as much as you like or as little as you like. But um, often, you know, I've seen it in situations that I've personally been involved in myself. Um, as I said, there was a matter about a year ago that, that I was sort of involved in. But I know that the competition isn't just about the check and the check size, is it? I mean, you've got other, uh, you know, people with different structures. They maybe want to buy the shares. Others want to buy a breakup. You know, others have got the unions and the government behind them. Uh, others maybe have rallied and, and, and got the, the creditors. Uh, you've got, you know, competing hedge funds. Um, I mean, what it must make it very difficult for, uh, you know, for the person in the, in the role of administrator to have to be able to say, well, we're going to take this, this buyer instead of that buyer when the metrics aren't necessarily black and white. No, that's right. We, 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 um, so on the Virgin process, we had a very, um, you know, an investment, two investment banks assisting us as well. Um, we had a pretty significant criteria went through. Um, some of it was price. Price is a big thing. We have uh, duties as administrators to get the best result we can for creditors, essentially, and um, that's what it is about. But we also looked at, you know, who is going to be best for the airline and going to be able to execute the best as well. And, um, you know, end of the day, Quite, quite a lot of the decision, most of the decision comes down to uh, you know, who is paying the most, but, it, but with the least conditions and you know, able, to, able to settle essentially in the least amount of time. And when, when, after that, we look at things like, you know, what, what are their plans for the airlines? How are they going to get on with unions? Things like that as well. So um, it's, it, it was a pretty, pretty um, serious amount of uh, work we did actually on deciding who we'd take forward. Um, we actually had initially thought it would only take a day or two, and we ended up taking about a week to make that decision. So we went through quite a bit of detail. And that, was that a stressful process? Because what 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 I was what I was thinking, I was watching, you know, just like everybody else, following it in the papers. And the thing about those hedge funds is, I mean, they they tend to hire some pretty sharp lawyers. Um, so, you know, you're not, you know, they, 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 I guess you've got to dot your eyes and cross your t's, and, and you got to. How does that all work? Oh, in, uh, end of the day, it's a team effort. There was four administrators in this job, and there was probably another six or seven joint partners involved. And so, um, you know, we 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 uh, collaborate with not only our internally and, and our risk people, but also with the advisors we had. We had a good set of lawyers, say a couple of investment banks as well. And um, it's it's really about uh, making that decision, um, and having consulted with the best advice we can get. End of the day, we're we're anchored in what our duties are to creditors. And so we felt pretty comfortable that uh, the, the outcome here was reflective of that. And that's really what guided us all the way through was we had a power of sale, which we were prepared to exercise, and we were trying to get the best result we could for creditors. And, and you always knew you'd get a sale away. Like Tian mentioned before, um, again, I can't remember exactly the way he phrased it, but, the, you know, obviously the government wants, I assume the government wanted there to be two airlines. Like they didn't want there to be just Qantas and Rex, for argument's sake. Um, yeah. So was that, a, was that a consideration or was it just obvious early on that there'd be someone was going to buy this thing? Um, at the end of the day, we went to market pretty quickly. I think a big driver of the, the deal was the um, you know, cash flow was really, really tough. So the month before we got appointed, the, the, the cash boom was very high in the hundreds of millions. And so we, we, we really had to react very quickly. Um, and so we, we were on the market the day after we were appointed. And yeah. it's a pretty express process. I think if you talk to anyone in the M&A markets about size of deal and how quickly they can be done, it was it'd be up there in terms of speed. But um, it it was uh, that was probably a big driving force of it, rather than any other sort of considerations. End of the day, our primary our primary responsibilities on this were to with creditors. But you know, we did have to keep in mind we had ten thousand employees we wanted to look after. We had a bunch, you know, thousands of suppliers. Um, 
the, 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 the consuming public, we had ten thousand velocity members, uh, ten million, sorry, velocity members that wow. were you know in, in, interested in this as well. So it was there was a, there was a bit to take into account, but uh, ultimately we were uh, guided by our, our duties. Yeah, it wouldn't have helped that you were negotiating in public every day and seeing uh, all the negotiations play out in the newspapers uh, on a daily <laughs> basis. Yeah, I, I learned more about what I was doing from the newspapers than what I was actually doing in those meetings. It was amazing. <laughs> I must admit, it was it, it was interesting because we didn't really see you guys personally in the papers a lot. It was a little bit like, um, you know, the, the, the old ANSET matter where you'd see these people uh, sort of on the TV every day. You guys obviously just, just went about your business. Um, yeah, we we, uh, we worked in with the um, the media relations people at Virgin, but um, ultimately um, we, we took a pretty sort of um, uh, cautious approach in terms of media. Um, we didn't want the thing to be played out in media. We wanted the job to sort of stand on its own, and and, and we, we took that approach. So we're, we're, most of the media that happened wasn't necessarily involving us being interviewed on it, uh, and we think that's actually ultimately why the job was reasonably successful as well. We won't talk about it now, but Tien had a wonderful job a number of years ago with the, the Caltex franchisees, and uh, uh, he was a, he was a wonderful media player back then. Um, that, that was maybe, maybe another time we could talk about that that job. Tien <laughs> brings back a lot of good memories. Yeah, yeah, that, that good good times. Um, so, so anything for, for you to add on that point, uh, Tien, to what we've just been talking about? Yeah, well, I just want to talk a, a little bit about what Richard said and commend him and his team for a skillful application of the VA process. Um, it provided, when when in skilled hands, it can provide a, a very useful tool for uh, allowing a company to be restructured in the manner they did and then on sold. Uh, there's a, always a cry. I'm Canadian by birth and uh, practiced there before moving to Australia some years ago. But there's always a cry for a North American-style Chapter 11 process in Australia, and mm -hmm. I must say I never really understood that. I felt yeah. that the mechanisms here in Australia are just as readily equipped to facilitate distressed debt restructuring uh, as they are in the United States under Chapter 11, particularly with the advent now of um, schemes of arrangement and also with Safe Harbor. I think in the hands of skilled operators, insolvency practitioners, that... Um, the tools are there to be used properly and effectively. I, I totally agree. Actually, um, we, we were we did get recognised for Chapter Fifteen on Virgin, um, so we did have some uh, intersection with the, the US bankruptcy legislation as well. And um, it's a it's an expensive process. Um, you know, it's court driven, and you know you, you have to go to court regularly for major decisions. Where in Australia, obviously, we delegate that to to, to practitioners such as ourselves, and it's it's such a um, a more flexible, um, better process. I, I reckon, anyway. Um, I think there's a there's, there's generally a view in Australia that it's, it's insolvency is expensive, but you know, go and go and have a business in the US and see how you turn out. It's very, it's a very, very expensive. Chapter eleven is a very, very expensive process. Over there. Yeah, I think it is a matter of the gr the grass being greener. I, I know that mm. uh, you're probably obviously you're you're uh, head of the Queensland chapter of the TMA at the moment, and uh, I. I, I, I on the committee. <laughs> on the committee. On the committee. Sorry, I didn't want to do anyone out of a job. Been given a promotion, by me. Well done, <laughs> Mr. Sherry's screaming as we speak. No, that's okay. Um, but uh, I know it's a, it's it's a sensitive topic uh, in the TMA. It gets it gets vigorously debated. I know, um, you know, because I guess the TMA is an international uh, outward looking organisation, and uh, you get advocates for Chapter Eleven uh, coming along. Listen, I want to um, I want to ask you, uh, Richard. 
you know, what when, when you get appointed to a matter, I understand Virgin's an exceptional matter, so I'm not necessarily talking about Virgin, but just generally, uh, you get appointed to a matter and, uh, you know, you want to maximise, well, firstly, you want to preserve value for all stakeholders. Then, of course, you want to maximise the outcomes. So, you know, what 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 are you doing from the day you get the appointment through to the day when you you know close close the deal on sale. What what are the things that cross your mind to to maximise value? Being involved in uh, the the cash flow systems of the business and controls to ensure it's well controlled, and um, and, to, and trying to get some cash to to trade. Um, sometimes in appointments you're getting an indemnity. Um, sometimes you're not. So the indemnity certainly helps in giving you that extra time as well. Um, and then you're looking for opportunities to use the the regime to, to, to conduct uh, the restructure of the business. So in, in the VA is very, very useful for that. And things like, for instance, leases, um, you know, uh, stock you may not want, um, gear you may not wish to continue with that's unprofitable, unprofitable contracts. You can leave those behind and get rid of them pretty quickly in an administration. And they're the sorts of things that add value through the process. And then when you go to a sale process, you're looking for um, competitive tension, as I mentioned before, trying to get as many buyers involved and trying to, um, give them the um, best aspects of the business uh, and, and showing them the, what's possible post restructure. Yeah, um, and and I, so I guess you know when you when you get appointed to a job, um, I mean, is it obvious from the beginning that, that a sale is an exit, or you know, is it you know, presumably often the existing Virgin again being a different case, but you know, for a large SME or a, or a middle market business. I guess uh, the existing owners don't necessarily want to give it away, but they do become vulnerable. I guess the business does come in play, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. It does. Um, and they've got to come up with the best deal for creditors. Um, yeah. But it really depends on the situation. Um, what one of the, I think one of the successful things we did on Virgin, but we've have done on several jobs is that contingency planning. So rather than just going into VA and getting there with a cold um, slap of water in the face, you actually do some planning prior and you can hit the ground running and, and, and make some decisions around, is the sale the best process or do the owners have an interest here? And if you're talking about, for instance, a business that's been supported by owners for a number of years, they may have an interco account that might be useful for them in, you know, right. in the voting process in a VA, for instance, and, and use that as part of the restructure. So they're the sorts of things you can consider uh, yeah. as you work through. I, I echo those comments, Richard. I think it's very, very important to have appropriate and thorough planning before you pull the trigger. On a restructuring job we recently completed for the Boathouse Group, we put two parties together that injected a large amount of capital so that the Boathouse Group would, would be properly financially leveraged and continue some expansion plans. Now, before we pulled the trigger on that restructuring job, there, there were weeks of planning around it, how to structure the organization, what entities to keep, what creditors to deal with, how to structure the entity going forward. Uh, without that planning, it would have been an absolute mess and three times planning, one time execution. That's the that's the model we follow. Yeah, certainly that's what we're talking to a lot of clients and a lot of people about in this in this um, run up to Christmas is um, you've been given a God-given gift, a uh, government-given gift, not a God one, um, which is time. The thing we never have in restructuring is time. We're always trying to create time. You've actually got time now to do some contingency planning to go into those sort of processes once this uh, monitoring finishes. Speak to that again. And Many times you're trying to deal with creditors and convince them that the restructure is actually in their best interest. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a whole phobia around the word phoenixing, and rightly so, but what we do in this industry you know, a lot of people characterize it as the dark arts. 
we're leaving a little bit of bad debt behind. There's no doubt about that in some cases, but failing that, the entity is going to collapse. Employees are going to lose the job and mm. the economy doesn't benefit from that. The owners of the business, the shareholders, all the stakeholders don't benefit from it. The landlord of the property the business is operating out of doesn't benefit. We just end up with greater problems. So if you can structure a business, leaving behind a little bit of bad debt, usually the ATOs, the largest one in those, unfortunately for them. But if you can leave behind a little bit of bad debt and you can restructure the business on a fair market value basis, that's that's a win for everyone, long term anyway. Is that the way you see it, Richard? Yeah, I think at the end of the day, um, what what creditors have got to do, I think, is understand what the situation is. And quite often it does need another party, a trusted party, to, to tell them that. That's where, and that's where we get involved. But, you know, um, a business is worth what a business is worth. And if the debts exceed it, you know, you, you, it, something has to happen. And quite often you have to point that out. And yeah. it t- sometimes takes another party to do it. And, and, and Tian, we were talking before, what, what about, there's one thing when you're acting for the client. Um, well, well, well you, you're for acting for the buying party. But what about when you're acting maybe for someone who wants to pull a sale apart? Have you, have you ever tried to, to stop a sale? Yes, uh, and unfortunately have been successful. But, you know, I'd like to say I was just doing my job um, <laughs> for, for my client. But uh, it doesn't make you feel a little very good sometimes in this business when you're destroying something that, that's looking, you know, like it might remain viable. It, it definitely does happen. You've got to uh, trust in the system, though. And you've got to trust that you're, you're effectively, I suppose, you feel a... You feel essentially like a private equity person destroying the business, and um, it doesn't make you feel, feel very good at the time, but you basically got to take a long-term view and say, that's just the nature of things and the way the way forward. New things will, new opportunities will arise for, for that market space. So it, it, is, it is sometimes challenging, personally, to comply with your professional obligations and do your job, but it is what it is. A lot, a lot comes down to stakeholder management too, I think. And, um, you know, if people if people feel in these processes they haven't been treated fairly, that's when you get a challenge to sale. If they, right. if they feel like they've been treated fairly and communicated with, um, quite often that's not not necessarily an issue. Yeah, I must admit, I, ha- I have seen scenarios where uh, a creditor feels like they've been dudded and there was something terrible mm-hmm. going on. And, and even though it's completely irrational, uh, you know they'll 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 fund an administrator or a lawyer to to attack uh, a sale or attack a, a restructure, and you're thinking you're not going to get anything out of this. It's all been done right, but because they weren't, because I guess you could say the stakeholder management wasn't done right, uh, they they want to go to war. Look, guys, uh, unbelievably, we're actually out of time. So I'll just ask you for final uh, final comments. We'll try and finish on an upbeat note. Um, it, what, what's your advice to uh, to people looking to buy businesses uh, in in the new year, given that we've got all these uh, all this uh, um, insolvency cliff coming and all the rest of it? What's what's your advice? Uh, yeah, so I, I think um, uh, absolutely engage with um, you know the administrators or liquidators or receivers as as the case may be. Um, have, have a think about it. are there more innovative ways to do it as well. It may not be that um, waiting for something to fall over and buying it might be the best way. There are you know things like buying the debt early or engaging with the business early, and other things might be another way to get um, you know, maybe reduce that competitiveness in the situation that that we have to we have to put in place in a formal sense. Um, and uh, you know, there's plenty of money around, so yeah. go hard <laughs> because there's lots of money around, and, and um, it probably doesn't get much cheaper in terms of cost of debt at the moment. 
Okay. Tian? I'd echo that as well. I'd say that um, a little bit of preparation and planning will save you a lot of heartache. So make the investment. Make the investment early in hiring some professionals, people who know what they're doing, smart, creative people who can structure a deal in a way that's going to suit you, going to suit the acquired business, and it's going to make it longer and happier and more viable in the long term. Make that investment early. It's worth it. Yeah, well, that, that, is, that is good advice. I always say when you're going to war, you've got to make sure you've got the right team around you. There's no doubt about that. Listen, uh, before I wrap up, I will say that Richard, one of your uh, colleagues in Sydney, has asked a question. He's going to win the mug. Uh, you win the mug, but it's a little bit too cheeky. So um, I'm not going to I'm not going to ask it. Um, I'm going to say. Let me hear what that is. It's not aimed at you, Richard. It's a, it's a bit of a cheeky question for Tian, but uh, we'll we'll let that go. Listen, um, uh, Tian Kerr and and Richard Hughes, thank you so much for uh, for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Nick. Really thank appreciate you. It. I'm looking you. forward getting one of those lunch money mugs myself. Thank you. Oh, well, you'll have to ask the right question. All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you to all our listeners and our viewers, and uh, we'll do it all again soon. Cheers. Thank you. Good to see you, Richard. Good to see you, Nick.